Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, a constructive Credit Suisse, maintaining a positive view on global equities with a preference for emerging markets. Let's talk to James Sweeney, shall we? Credit Suisse's chief economist. Good morning to you, James. Good morning. Why the optimism? Why the preference for global equities still? Because of growth. I mean, we have we have global growth running above trend. It's been doing so for two and a half years, and that should continue. I think the big problem has been dollar strength and policy concerns and bad policy in a, in a bunch of specific countries. To what degree do you think the U.S. economy has decoupled? from the rest of the world? Well, when you look from a short-term perspective, industrial production growth recently in the U.S. has been running above 4% and in the rest of the world, you know, significantly lower. Europe and China have slowed a little bit um, in the last four or five months, but we actually expect them to rebound. We expect the rest of the world to rebound. We expect the U.S. to actually slow a little bit. So that differential that you see in PMIs, for example, over the last six months, we actually think is going to start going the other way now. And that above-trend global growth as a whole is set to continue. Does that shape or define how you allocate capital in the back half of this year? Yes, it does. I mean, the yeah. I mean, we're we're always thinking ahead on where the next turn is on industrial production in particular because we expect all of the lead indicators that the market overreacts to PMIs and and such to move in that way, and the surprise indices to follow that way. So that's very important. We expect positive data surprises from the euro area. It just seems that the uh, the big trade so far in 2018 is by America. And we saw in the Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey, the fund manager survey that was released yesterday, that certainly the fund managers are allocating to that story. Do you think you need to reallocate elsewhere and well, sort of drop your exposure to the US? I mean, there's the, the first element of Buy America is that the tech sector lives here. And when you look at what's yep. happening in the tech sector, you're getting explosive returns because you're getting explosive earnings. And you don't have valuations really going crazy at this at this point. So if you could look at America X tech, uh, then you know maybe allocating a little bit away from America and towards the rest of the world right now would would make some sense, but um, but I but I, yeah. I think you can't leave tech out. But that gets to the Fed and the idea of the many Americas. Chair Yellen clearly had slack as her lead describer of an American economy. We have a Fed that has to deal with the tech boom and its tangential excellence, and the rest of America, given the political tone, flat on their back. That's not in Abel Bernanke or, or in uh, you know, the other core macro textbooks. It's not a Mancue, right? Yeah, it's true, but it's also not new. I mean, we've had we've had kind of meager wage growth lower down the income distribution for some time. And what we've seen lately is that the labor market has tightened up at the kind of middle and the and the lower ends, but it has not led to sharply rising wage growth. And if you're getting Two three percent wage growth at a level of wages which you're not very happy with. The chances are you're not thrilled, and that that's yeah. where it is right now. But income growth, labor income growth for the U.S. as a whole is strong and has accelerated. <coughs> oh, and that's wait. very important, and that's wait. what the Fed's going to respond to. This is so important. What um, Dr. Sweeney just said there: this dis- distinction between an aggregate analysis and the individual analysis. I think of Jason Furman's wonderful work on this. Explain to our audience how we can say wage growth is terrible. Yeah. And yet gross labor income is a is it a a great vector 
and a great level. Yeah, labor income is simple. You add up everybody's paychecks and you say how much money great. is the household sector getting paid. The the that has been growing at around 4.4% nominal terms since 80% 2008. 80% of the audience listening to this goes you're out of your mind. Well, it's been growing at four and a half as I said and and recently it's actually accelerated a little bit. Now, wage growth or or aggregate labor income growth comes from wage growth and it comes from growth in hours worked. And hours worked obviously is driven mostly by jobs growth. And so what we've seen was we've had good jobs growth for a time. That's now tightened the labor market, including at the right. low end. So you maybe expect to see more wage growth, but we've seen a little bit more wage growth. We haven't seen that okay. much wage growth. Just so you know, oh wise one, that this is called the Pharaoh effect. No. Where hours work takes over is the partial differential. Yeah. And Pharaoh's, I mean, he's working like a 92 hour week. And that alone moves the needle. Along with you. I'm, I'm what's, only working 89 hours. Just, just the 89 hours. Well, that's I, because I, I you've got other properties, including the real yield. That is true. But James, James Swinney doesn't care about any of this. Well, I, I do, actually, because it's one of the things that happens <laughs> late in the cycle, is that hours work I meant my work in a week, James. <laughs> no, what will happen is at some point you'll get so good at your job, you'll have so many job offers, that you'll just your wages will go up and you'll work a you little bit less. You mean he'll leave? I, no. No, you have to give him James, a raise. It's James He'll Sweeney, stay oh, really? and you have oh. to give him a raise because oh. of his offers. Oh, Hang look, on a minute. I look. like where this conversation's I, going. I'm trying to negotiate for you. There's an email from the Brooks Falls in Alaska from Alfred, New Jersey. Yeah, I bet. I we bet. should say to Alfred, don't turn away from the grizzly bears. I mean, he just dropped his cell phone taking James photos Sweeney, of grizzly if, bears. if I could afford to take you away from Credit Suisse and hire you as my agent, I would. Um, before we let you go, I want to get you... Excuse me, agents, plural. I want to get your dollar call. We're close to a 97 handle this morning. Yep. on DXY. What's your base case now, James? Yeah, um, we, we actually think that the dollar is, is going to sell off uh, because global growth is going to stay strong and we expect upside surprises coming from Europe. We think European interest rates are going to rebound and, uh, and, and that the dollar move is basically overshot. We also see this as an as a EM crisis. We're in a panic and usually in a panic, you know, you're going to go the other way. So the market pressure on Erdogan to make some of the correct economic choices but, but, is high. But what you just said there is so important you're assuming the panic gets solved. That's true. That has worked before. Stan Fisher's classic book out of 1998 is an example. Can it get solved now, given the realities of American politics and their extension abroad? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, this, is, this is a Turkish issue, not, not a U.S. issue. I mean, and, and really what Turkey needs to do is to tighten fiscal and monetary policy and take some orthodox policy steps in order to stem this crisis. So um, I'm not sure the political theater between our leadership and their leadership is the same as what the bond market wants. And I think that's a very important distinction. Are you surprised to see euro dollar down here at 113? Yeah, I mean, I th I think it's a it's a sharp move, but it's it's um, it's related to the fact that we're in a little Turkey crisis at at the moment. I'm just trying to work out what drives European and Asian growth higher. What delivers the upside surprise? Is it a policy response? Oh well, that we I mean, when you when you look organic, just help me understand it's, it's it. It's organic. More. I mean, the bottom line is if you look at the underlying pace of capex in Europe in real terms, and you look at the underlying pace in retail consumer spending, um, they're strong. They're, they're strong. And so what we do is we compare in detail what's happening to manufacturing activity to those sources of manufacturing demand from businesses and from firms. If the demand sources are fine and manufacturing activity has recently been very weak, 99 times out of 100, 
industrial production is about to rebound. And so in the three months to either March or April, uh, European industrial production actually no. contracted by three or four percent. So demand is running well. Factory activity has slowed. It's mm -hmm. a short-term momentum move. PMIs come down with it. The market overshoots. The ECB overreacts and gives you forward guidance for a year. And then factory activity picks back up again because the consumers are spending money and the businesses are investing. And when you look at the hard data, that's what's happening. James Sweeney, with some real optimism there, sophisticated optimism. Thank you so much with Credit Suisse, their chief economist. Stephen Cook is at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, out of Vassar with parchment from Johns Hopkins and his doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we are honored to have him for a half hour this morning to really dive into some of the nuances here, basically to slow the show down and actually talk about the underpinnings of what's going on in Turkey. His must read is False Dawn, just simply because of events, it's become the book of the moment. Stephen Cook, wonderful to have you with us. If you wrote False Dawn on this Wednesday morning, how would it be different than when you wrote it? <laughs> well, I couldn't write it in a Wednesday morning, but thanks, Tom. Uh, I think that uh, many of the arguments that I set forth in Falstaff, particularly when it comes to Turkey and the and the uh, transformation of Turkey into an elected autocracy, uh, are uh, are strengthened by what's been happening uh, with the lira crisis and the and the and the related crisis in U.S.-Turkey relations. Um, what has happened in Turkey is essentially self-inflicted wounds as a result of a leader whose political calculations and political interests are uh, bound up in uh, pumping up the economy with low interest rates and then blaming the United States when the day of reckoning right. comes. Uh, Dr. Cook, uh, John Farrell's got all sorts of wisdom questions, but I want to cut to the American chase. What is different this time is the posture, stance, cadence, dialogue of our American president. What do we, what's the change you need to see from President Trump to affect a better outcome in Turkey? Well, I think we are seeing uh, a change in tone, and um, from one perspective, certainly for the better. Uh, the previous two administrations, the George W. Bush's administration and Barack Obama's administration, had been too passive, too willing to overlook Turkish bad behavior yeah. for the sake of a strategic relationship. I think that President Trump has taken a look at the accumulation of things that the Turks have done to undermine American policy and an American position in the Middle East uh, and decided that the Turks have gone too far with the taking of uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, as well as something that gets lost in all the commentary. 15 to 20 other Turkish Americans, those are Turks with American citizenship, who are in Turkish jails on trumped-up terrorism charges. Uh, so I think that um, this issue has become a flashpoint for the broader relationship and the problems in the broader relationship. Stephen, it's hard for some people to reconcile that a NATO ally is not a reliable partner. How do you reconcile those two things, Stephen? Well, uh, 
Turkey is not the only problematic NATO partner, but it is, I think, an outlier in how far it has gone in uh, development of its relations with Russia, uh, how far it has gone to undermine uh, the American fight against uh, the Islamic State in Syria, how far it has gone to help the Iranians evade sanctions that were designed to contain and arrest the development of its nuclear program. Um, Those are just three of larger issues um, that um, are roiling the relationship. I think they're the most important ones, but of course there are others. Erdogan has been able to capitalize on the fact that because of his rhetoric, a stupefying 80% of Turks believe that the United States was complicit in the failed coup d'etat in July 2016. And large numbers also believe that the current uh, dispute between the two countries, uh, that in the current dispute between the two countries, the United States is engaged in economic warfare on Turkey. So to your point, with the last two administrations being perhaps far too passive and uh, ignoring the behaviour of President Erdogan, what is the correct tool to use to address the behaviour of Turkey? And does economic sanctions get it done? Or does that just fuel this nationalism that is erupting at the moment in the country? I I, I think that it's important to recognise that Erdogan responds to pressure. Uh, The Turks shot down a Russian bomber that had briefly crossed its airspace en route to Syria in 2015. Uh, President Putin really put the screws to the Turks. Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, was quite upset over the uh, arrest of a German-Turkish journalist and threats to German journalists in Turkey uh, and threatened uh, President Erdogan. Uh, with business ties, and business ties between Turkey and Germany are extremely important. This uh, encouraged President Erdogan to do the right thing on a variety uh, uh, of issues. I think that with the politicking that Erdogan is doing, he is seeking to buy himself some time politically and cushion himself from uh, and insulate himself from these problems. But I think that the logic, while the logic of Turkish politics right now is outstripping the logics of the market, at some point, he's going to run out of right. nationalist rhetoric, and the market is going to force uh, changes right. on the Turks. Stephen Kirk with us, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, thrilled to have him here for a lengthy interview this morning. Uh, Dr. Cook, the Bosphorus is 20 miles long. It seems longer than that, but it's not. If you go out the north side that nobody in the west pays attention to, there is a Black Sea. What's the dynamic right now that Mr. Putin can take advantage of given this crisis? Oh, well, certainly President Putin has sought to take advantage to, of the tension between U.S.-Turkey relations. They've, he's been doing that for some time. As the, as the Turks were forced to respond to him after uh, shooting down their plane and after the United States made it clear that it wasn't going to get more deeply involved in Syria, yeah. the Turks went to Moscow to secure their interests. Certainly, President Putin is seeking to take advantage of uh, the problems in the U.S.-Turkey relations as well as problems right. in U.S. relations with other countries. Uh, the Black Sea, though, is something that makes the Turks very, very, very nervous. Yeah. That may still be an area of cooperation between the United States and Turkey. I don't think right. anybody's really looking at a breach in the relationship between the two countries. But I think a change is afoot. Right. Uh, and it's, 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 it's the kind of relationship where we will be able to cooperate where we can, get out of each other's way, 
in other places and have to oppose right. each other when our interests uh, dictate. Very quickly here, and we'll come back on a more general discussion. Percolating today is Turkish capitalism, Turkish business, uh, advising Mr. Erdogan, let's get going. From where you sit in international relations, what is the relation of Turkish big business to the Erdogan regime? Well, it depends on which big business in Turkey we're talking about. If we're talking about the kind of traditional big business based in the western part of the countries uh, associated with, with big families, uh, that is a business community that has had uh, a wary, a mistrustful, uh, more difficult relationship with uh with President Erdogan, because they are considered to be kind of old establishment, and Erdogan is distrustful of uh, of those people. Then there's big business that has grown up around uh, Erdogan over the course of the last 15 years, or even predate the emergence of the Justice and Development Party. Uh, these are the kind of core constituency of the Justice and Development Party emerging from central Anatolia. Those people have very good mm-hmm. relations with the Justice and Development Party. Here's the deal, though. You have to have good ties with the government in order to do business in Turkey. So everybody, everybody yeah. understands that they can't openly cross uh, right. Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Well, let's do this. Stephen Cook with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't say enough about his effort. The false dawn, uh, John, of a year ago, a long, long, long year ago, just a spectacular book linking all of the Middle East, not just Turkey, into um, the disappointments that we've seen across the political economics. We'll come back in a broader discussion with Dr. Cook here. We are thrilled to bring in Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen, in all studies I've seen, the Middle East is about demographics in the overwhelming reality of the youth and the lack of understanding of history of so many millions in the Middle East. Does Turkey have the same problem? Does Turkey have the same demographic structure as the other countries in your book, The False Dawn? Turkey is a very young country as well. Uh, There are only two countries in the region that have an average age that is even approaching 30. Uh, So the difference between Turkey and other countries is that Turkey actually has a real economy. It has problems with its economy, but it does have a manufacturing base. It does, it is connected and integrated to Europe, which is one of the concerns that people have uh, right now. A lot of these other countries don't really have much in the way of an economy. Thus, you have young people who who are quite idle. Uh, not so much the case in Turkey. Okay, but in Turkey, and the stereotypes here, folks, come on, let's admit it, folks, as we talk to Dr. Cook, 95% of people listening's knowledge of Turkey is from Russia with love the james bond movie from a few years ago Stephen, take us away from our silly stereotypes of turkey if i go west from istanbul when do i hit europe or is turkey europe well it depends on where you're standing in istanbul you can stand in istanbul and you are in europe and then you can stand in another place in istanbul and you're in asia uh istanbul is an extraordinarily cosmopolitan city people from all 
all walks, all parts of the world, all kinds of cuisines. It is a city of great history. It's the former imperial capital of the Ottoman Empire, which ruled the Middle East as well as parts of Europe for about 600 years. If you move east, you'll see changes uh, in the country, uh, less development further out east, but still more developed than a lot of the other countries that are our neighboring Turkey. One of the things about the Justice and Development Party era, the last 16 years in Turkey, is that there has been an explosion of development of infrastructure, of transportation options, of right. business, of a development of a middle class. So uh, there has been some good economic management. This is a, a more recent problem with an overheated economy based on the fact that President Erdogan needs low interest rates and growth uh, in order to get reelected and reelected and reelected so he can affect the transformation of Turkey for better or worse. And Stephen, as we know through history, this doesn't end well. I think some people sort of waking up if they've missed all of this. At one point several years ago, Turkey was on course to being an EU member. Something politically went very, very wrong, Stephen. What was it? Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning irony. Um, by this time, Turkey was to be, by 2018, Turkey was to be on the cusp of European Union membership and joining the ultimate club of, of liberal democracies. Now it looks like an elected autocracy. And I think what has happened now, there's a debate. There's a debate within the Turkey watching community about what happened. Some people will argue that this was Erdogan's plan all along, that he was an authoritarian who right. was out to accumulate power from the very beginning. Others have a more nuanced view, and I include myself in that group, which is that a number of things happened around 2007-2008 in which the Turkish establishment made it very clear they were going to try to prevent the Justice and Development Party from ruling and governing the country. And as a result, you had this very harsh authoritarian uh, turn in which Erdogan has tried to pulverize yeah. his opponents. Now, Stephen, one final question, unfortunately too quick. If I go down to the Mediterranean to Izmir, what does this depreciation of the lira mean? If I walk into the Deniz restaurant, world famous, it's been there for 30 years, what does the lira depreciation meant to the people that run and work at the Deniz restaurant in Izmir? Well, everything is more expensive for the Deniz uh, restaurant owners uh, and managers. Everything that they have to buy to run that restaurant is much more expensive to, for them. In addition, this, this tension with the United States has the potential to depress uh, the number of tourists who are visiting the Denise restaurant, tourists who are carrying dollars or euros, right. which would buy much, much more in Turkey these days. But because of this tension, because of tension with Europe, uh, there are fewer and right. fewer tourists in Turkey these days. Steve, I kindly brought that up because Pharaoh and I are doing a road trip this week. I knew that's why you did it. I knew that's why you did it. We're pitching our producers to allow us to go you around the world. Right. Stephen to, Cook to, says <laughs> we need to go. To, to countries where the currency yeah. has been battered. So we're going to do well. this food currency. Tour. This has been wonderful. Stephen Cook, the Council for Relations. Folks, I can't say enough about his false dawn. I'll put a major push on it out at my book site uh, this weekend. Spending money to make money, getting ways for people to have 30 to 50% off their big home and furniture sale. Let's find out more about how Macy's is doing with Sarah Halzak, our Bloomberg opinion columnist who knows everything about shopping at the flagship store. Sarah, so what about Macy's? What's wrong with spending money to make money? 
Well, I think that uh, investors maybe just realized today they got a bit ahead of themselves. Uh, this stock had been up 66% year-to-date. It was one of the biggest movers on the S&P. And you've got to be thinking to yourself, this is a company that's right at the center of the retail apocalypse. How is this possible? Um, and I think uh, it was they, they had these improved results in the holiday quarter, in the first quarter, and investors got a little carried away. And they realized that today, as you said, these improvements that they're making to survive cost money. Uh, free shipping is not free to retailers. It's free to you, the shopper, but not to retailers, and they're feeling some of the weight of that. And I think what we saw today is that Macy's is a company that's making modest progress but still has these existential questions about how sustainable the department store format is in this uh, retailing era. I mean, you don't know whether people are actually going to buy things in order to pick them up at the store free or get 25% off if you use their app or get 20% off if you use a Macy's charge card. Right, and they're trying to do some different approaches to uh, discounting and loyalty as well. So, for example, they've revamped their loyalty program, trying to encourage more people to join that and to get discounts and perks through that format. And they're trying to get away from this thing where you stack coupon on top of coupon on top of coupon because they're finding that people just find that to be confusing and befuddling and and try to go to a more clear value-oriented message and hope that that goes a long way towards improving sales. Tell us about Macy's Backstage. So Macy's Backstage is their effort to capitalize on this real strength that we've seen in the off-price retail sector, TJ Maxx, Ross stores. These have been strong performing retailers because we're seeing that in the brick-and-mortar environment, shoppers like this treasure hunt. They like this, uh, you know, uh, fishing around for a unique find. And this is Macy's trying to put a little bit of that DNA within their store. So they're seeing stronger spending in the backstage departments from their existing loyal customers, and that's helping drive comparable sales growth. My question for Macy's is, is this pulling in any new shoppers? Exactly. Right. And so I I worry that while, yes, it is perhaps drawing stronger spending from the customers they already have, and that's improving comparable sales in the near term, if, again, if Macy's is to survive for the long haul, they're going to need to bring in new new people. Sarah, as usual, you nail it. To me, this is a top-line exercise. The word of, of the moment for corporate world is scale. I don't see any scale here. The way they did this was to open stores, buy other companies, Marshall Fields, the whole wrap up, the whole the roll up thing. You know it all. I'm looking on the Bloomberg. It's zero percent revenue growth blended out. Can they actually get legit revenue scale? I think it's going to be really difficult to do with the format that they currently have. And look, I think there are some interesting weapons in their arsenal. They bought this Blue Mercury beauty chain, and beauty has been such a hot area. You look at the performance of uh, Sephora and Ulta, really strong performing retailers. And I think Blue Mercury could easily uh, play in that space if they expand it more quickly. But yes, it's really hard to envision a future where they can post strong revenue growth based on the traditional Macy's format. Well, just here to give you that perspective in 2015 they were doing over 28 billion in sales in the last 12 months they did 25 and a half billion their market cap has been cut yeah. in half this was a 21 billion yeah, but, dollar company back mm-hmm. in 15 and it is now right. an 11 but, billion but sarah dollar the heart of pim's good numbers there is this is a four cents on the dollar business this is not dominion electric you know, with a regulated 8, 9, 10, 12 net clean. I mean, you can't, I would suggest, Sarah, you can't do this 
flat revenue, shrinking revenues, given those ending margins. So then what does the, the, the legacy of Mr. Lundgren, what do they do? Yeah, so I think they're trying to become a healthier business in some other ways besides growing sales. One is through real estate transactions. So they hired a senior executive whose sole focus is to uh, free up value from their real estate. Uh, In particular, that Herald Square property in New York is a real crown jewel that they could get a bunch of money for if they were to then enter into a sale leaseback agreement. So they're trying to do things like that to become healthier. But it's all complicated. You know, they've closed 100 stores, and in some ways that makes them more productive. But in other ways, they say they even see um, online sales retreat in a given geographic yeah. area when they close a store. And right. so uh, it's it's certainly okay. a complicated and thorny problem they have at their door right now. Sarah, now you and I are going to listen to this question to Mr. Pim Fox. Pim, what was Harold Square like in oh. your ute? <laughs> well, it had another store across the street called Gimbal's. And indeed, that was always the joke, that they both lost money on everything they sold because they were in such intense competition, but that they made it up on volume. What was what was the holiday season? Oh, it was. It was like the. Was it like the? I mean, Sarah, this it is. It was important. like the movie. It was like the it was movie like the Miracle movies. on Thirty Fourth Street. Isn't that cool, Sarah? Yeah, but that's you know antediluvian. That's like the Pleistocene era. <laughs> You know, I think they still have one escalator in that Macy's Herald Square store that is from that era. Right, the wooden escalators, right, that you used to get caught on as a child. Or your father would say, if you don't behave, the escalator will eat you. Right. (laughs) You were not allowed to walk backwards on the escalator, Exactly, precisely. Did you get beaten at the same point as me? Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah Halsick, starting off seriously retail here with Macy's with a really interesting story. And I believe there's a small company in Arkansas reporting tomorrow. Yes, there is. Walmart. But, you know, just to put a little cap on this, Lord & Taylor, which is also another big flagship store. Up the street. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're shutting the store. I did not know that. Yeah, they're shutting the store and it's going to become a uh, WeWork project. Uh, where people can work. And well, the building we're sitting in here at 59th and Lakes. Used to be the Mr. Corvette, Alexander's, all those stores. Yes, Abraham and Strauss. Yes, A&S. Memories. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.